It's just after 6 o'clock and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is Too Much Information. A very special program today, live in the studio for most of the hour. We have the legislative artist, Lori Jo Reynolds. She'll be talking about uh, her work. and She's in town for a prize she got this weekend at the Creative Time Summit. And she's one of the amazing individuals behind the TAMS Year 10 campaign. You know, I, don't, I just don't get inspired by many things. And this is one of the most inspiring uh, projects I've learned about in quite some time. Part art project, part brute force human lobbying. It was a campaign aimed to shut down the TAMS Supermax prison in Illinois. And they did it. So we're going to talk with her in about 10 minutes. But first, first we have uh, an interview I recorded the other day with the filmmaker Shahan Nujain. She's the director of a new film about the past two years of revolutionary struggle in Egypt. The movie is called The Square. It all takes place in Tahrir Square, and it's currently playing at Film Forum here in New York City. But we'll open in more theaters across the country soon. I asked her where the movie began for her uh, as an Egyptian-American. She's actually made another film uh, in 2007 about a group of Egyptian women called Egypt, We Are Watching You. And she told me that for her, the square begins in 2010. She was actually on her way to Davos where she was hoping to record some interviews with uh, some of Egypt's leaders. But then the protests erupted. Obviously, none of the leaders showed up because the protests on the 25th and on the 26th and then the 28th of January were so huge. So I tried to get back to Egypt as quickly as I could, um, got back, got my, confis- my camera confiscated at the airport, um, drove away from the airport and about 20 minutes outside of the airport on my way home was stopped by military intelligence. Car was searched. They found a couple of the DVDs from uh, 2007, and not the best thing to find were a DVD written in big letters, Egypt, we're watching you. Um, They weren't sure who they were dealing with, so they took me in, um, and I was questioned for about uh, eight hours. And then, uh, actually, I I tried to get rid of a couple of the DVDs at one point in time. I was so scared about what was going to happen to me that I shoved them down this drain um, I don't know if you've ever been to a third world country, but um, in many places there are basically just holes in the ground for a toilet. So I, you know, <laughs> did the wonderful exercise of trying to get rid of them that way, but was soon um, joined in the interrogation room by one of the, the guy that was cleaning the bathrooms, and he was holding this shard of glass in the air. And basically said, you know, look what I found. <laughs> it was sort of, it was like the movies. Um, and uh, my interrogator just sort of looked at me, and I did really didn't, I was not able to lie or deny anymore, as I'd been doing for the previous many hours. And uh, I think something broke in me at that point where I just said, I came clean. I said, look, I made a film that of incredible women in Egypt that I have great admiration for who are fighting for human rights and freedom of speech, and 
I'm proud of the film, and I hope you see it, <laughs> but I don't know what you're going to do to me. And they actually let me go about an hour later. Um, but I think that moment of just stopping the pretending and deciding that I was going to be truthful about how I felt and what I stood for, regardless of the consequences, is a tiny piece of what many people who went down to that square um, felt, that they just were needed to change their relationship with their future and their country. Um, and so when I got to the square, I found this place that was incredibly inspiring, bursting with energy, filled with people who were talking politics to each other for the first time, Muslim, Christian, different classes, men, women, and all sleeping next to each other in a square. Uh, and I, I just felt like this is, a, this is a moment in history that I have to start capturing. And how does this work? Um, in the film, we meet a bunch of folks who are obviously part of the project, both behind and in front of the cameras and protesting in the square. But there's, you know, a lot of danger, people even getting killed. And there are a couple of moments in the film where it seems that whoever's uh, holding the camera is in real trouble. And can you talk about who did this filming and how dangerous it was? Well, this is an incredible part of the story, is that I met the, my entire crew in the square. Um, everybody that worked on the film were there anyway as protesters. So I've never worked on a film that has come together in such an organic, beautiful way. I mean, this film is blessed in more ways than I can possibly describe. But part of it was just meeting these incredible people that then became the main crew that made the film. And we had about four to five cameras in the square over two and a half years. We met our DP in the square, Mohammed um, Hamdi, who's a fantastic uh, shooter. And um, I met Cressida True, who was somebody who, can, who shot throughout um, the film and filmed a lot with her. She introduced me to her boyfriend at the time, Khaled Abdullah, who is now her husband. I don't know whether Khaled knew at the time when he agreed to be filmed that he would be waking up with a camera next to him. And in terms of um, the sort of the shots that are taken on the front lines and in the middle of the violence, those shots, most of them, were actually taken by Ahmed, the main character of the film, because he learns how to use the camera um, through the process of filmmaking and at a certain point decides that it's much more useful for him to be running to the front lines with a camera rather than a rock because he could upload and be giving evidence. So I'd say about a quarter of the film um, and definitely most of the sort of front-line intense footage is shot by Ahmed. Can you tell us a bit about how you found an ending for the film? Because, you know, you could actually still be filming uh, the you know just this morning I heard on the news about the incredible amount of violence that's still taking place um, in in around the square against the Muslim Brotherhood supporters. Uh, obviously, your film needed to have an end, but can you talk about how you found it? Um, well, I think in every film that you make, you're searching for a storyline that, you know, makes sense and you go into this, you don't know what's going to happen and you only have the storyline to make yourself 
feel comfortable that you are, that you actually do have a clue as to a direction you're going. And you can advise and lead a team of filmmakers and say, you know, we actually have an endpoint here. Um, but this film defied most everything. And I think, you know, with this film, we, and this is really why it had to be the protesters themselves shooting the film, because we had to want to be there anyway, and it was very much living in the moment. It was very reactive. Um, the first time that we allowed ourselves to end the film was with the election of Morsi. And you see the scene in the film, which is now not the end. It's now, you know, um, maybe 40 minutes before the end. But and during the first cut, it was the ending, where our characters are not happy with Morsi, but they feel like, you know, there's this process that is now... Um, going forward, a democrat, you know, somewhat of this democratic process. But what happened, and, and many people, even though they did not like Morsi, felt like, okay, this is a guy that he doesn't represent the old regime, and, you know, let's, let's put our faith in him. Let's put our faith in him that he will continue uh, the process. But literally, maybe three weeks, a month afterwards, after he was elected, he started to take dictatorial powers, um, a few months later, he pushed a constitution through, which was tailored to the Brotherhood um, and voted on by the Brotherhood. And so we realized, um, as we were on our way to Sundance, with this cut, which represented the political storyline, meaning the bringing down of a president to the election of a new president, um, we realized that the story was much more complex than that, that really, from the character's perspective, it was about the fight against fascism, whether that fascism was the faith of Mubarak or whether it was the military or whether it was the Muslim Brotherhood. So we knew as we were headed to Sundance and we, we were awarded the Audience Award at Sundance, which meant the world to us, and I think that much of the team you know, got a lot of strength from that in order to be able to continue because this film was made completely independently and people were operating on fumes. But we knew that we had to continue because this film, we hoped, would be a document that people would look at, you know, 50, 100 years from now, and it was important that we got this story right. So that's why we... So we continued, and I think we're very satisfied with the ending now because we have now seen a film where you have experienced the revolution live from the ground. You've watched the roller coaster ride of what it actually means to fight for change. And you've seen the ups and downs. And when do you actually, you know, see the Martin Luther King or the Gandhi when they've lost everything and feel like they're completely alone. So you see our characters as they go through those very depressed periods. But the most important of the moments that you know, you witness in the, in the film are those moments of being extremely depressed and lonely because it's when they decide to go back the next day and keep fighting that you realize that these people are not going to give up and it's about the staying power. So we finally found an ending when you see your characters go through this emotional cycle um, where they have now fought against some of, you know, the three major fascist power forces in the Arab world, which is, you know, a corrupt leadership with Mubarak, a corrupt military, and then a corrupt religious leadership.
The Square, uh, Jahan's New Jane's film, is now playing at Film Forum here in New York City and will be at other theaters soon. So check it out. So this is Too Much Information on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. And now joining me in the studio for the rest of the hour is Lori Jo Reynolds, a native of Atlanta, Georgia, an artist, policy advocate, and researcher who has dedicated two decades of work to addressing the negative representations of people in prison. Her legislative art participates and intervenes in government systems with the goal of concrete political change. For the past eight years, Reynolds has focused on TAMS Correctional Center, the notorious supermax prison in southern Illinois designed for sensory deprivation. In 2007, she collaborated with former and current inmates at TAMS, their families, and other artists to launch TAMS Year 10, a volunteer grassroots legislative campaign seeking to reform or close the prison. And Lori Joe joins us now in the studio. Welcome to WFMU. Thank you. I'm so glad you made it here. Uh, you were I met you at a photo show a few months ago and just was blown away by your work. I, I don't get inspired by many things, and you are one of the most inspiring people I've I've come met in in a while now. And you were in town this week to uh, get a w- an award at the Creative Time Summit. It was congratulations on that. Thanks. This was a big uh, a prize, the uh, Lenore Annenberg Prize for Art and Social Change, and you accepted the award with three of your collaborators uh, yesterday on stage. Also, another inspiring. Uh, uh, speech, but let's um, let's like back up all the way to the beginning. We've got some time here. We'll take some telephone calls later on in the hour too, um, and you can follow along at wfmu.org on the Accu playlist page. We'll have some links to some of the relevant sites that Lori's going to talk about here. So why don't we start at the beginning and uh, tell me how uh, this project Tams Year Ten begins? Well. The back, the way back history um, is that I was part of a group called the, called the Committee to End the Marion Lockdown uh, in, the, in the 90s, the late 90s in Chicago, um, and this group was focused on a federal prison called Marion that really started the whole Supermax um, trend because they uh, locked down a unit there and had people in complete solitary confinement. And um, after that, I met a few mothers who, who had sons and Tams, and that's really where that's really where I got hooked, um, meeting the mothers and realizing their sons had no human contact. So TAMS was built after that. TAMS Supermax Prison in Southern Illinois was built in 1998. And it was designed with no purpose other than sensory deprivation and to break people down. So it's a, it's a prison, a freestanding prison with no options but solitary confinement. There were no communal spaces built into the prison, no classroom, no chapel, no cafeteria, no yard. Um, so people exercised in sort of these little dog pens off the side of their um, pods. Um, so um, meeting some of those mothers and hearing how it affected them to have their sons there and also just hearing how their sons were existing completely blew my mind. I could not believe huh. that we, the people of Illinois, built a prison for that purpose. So one year turned into two, turned <laughs> two turned into three, and I still knew these moms. And... Um, there were people, there was a group called the TAMS Committee that was um, some of the moms, you know, were kind of writing letters to the guys and sending Christmas cards. Um, and so I st- stuck around with them for a few years. And then 
a group of artists in 2006 uh, started something called the TAMS Poetry Committee. And so we sent a poem to every single person in TAMS Supermax. And how many, how many prisoners are there at this point? It's varied over the years, but it's usually been a consistent number of about 280. Okay. And if you could just talk a little bit more about who these men are, because, you know, as far as the media representations are, Americans are always mm-hmm. told that these are the worst of the worst. I mean, similar to the debates you would hear about, you know, the high security needs for terrorism suspects after, you know, during the war on terror. It seemed that there was very, very much that language, but there was a moment in the late 90s where, like, the whole country was rolling up its sleeves, ready to, to spend bazillions of dollars to deal with the worst of the worst. That's exactly right. It, 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 there were media depictions all the time about these inner city super predators, these, you know, uncontrollable, even juvenile super predators. There's nothing you could do with them except lock them away forever. And states, there's no, you know, shortage of money to do whatever it takes to keep them secure and say, you know, keep them away from everyone else. And that was, par- that was a, you know, part of the rhetoric that drove sentences up and three strikes you're out and the building of supermax prisons. And believing that is what kind of allowed people to, to make this horrible mistake of building all these supermax prisons. So what was your question? Well, I was wondering if you could just... Oh, who's there? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, solitary confinement around the country uh, varies who's there and why, et cetera. But talking about TAM supermax prison in particular, um, you know, they always say that the worst of, wor- of the worst are there, but it's often really, if you look at who's there, it's often the weakest of the weak. It's people who have serious mental illnesses um, tend to go in segregation and solitary confinement. Uh, at a higher rate than other people because they're in a pr- they're in a paramilitary environment in prison where they have to follow all these rules and if they don't follow the rules they get a ticket and if they get a ticket you know if they can't if they don't keep in line they get tickets their tickets add up they end up in segregation then in segregation their their mental illness gets worse because then they're out of contact with other people and so their behavior gets worse and it gets worse and worse and worse and then they end up in a supermax prison so there's some people in TAM supermax that were like that and, you know, by their behavior getting worse, I mean they might throw feces, resist guards, um, you know, d- a number of different things. So that's one kind of, like, category of people that were there. Then um, there's also guys that were there who d- filed a lot of lawsuits. And so they were sent there for retaliation for filing. They're just basically people who are a lot of trouble. And if somebody's filing a lot of lawsuits and being a big pain in the prison, those people, the wardens tend to send to supermax prisons. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, a really great advocate in Illinois who describes who went to TAMS as a game of hearts, where all the wardens got to pick their worst cards and send them there, just whoever they couldn't deal with, you know. Um, but in Illinois, we... Uh, you, and, uh, it's different in every state, the dynamic and, you know, everything. But in Illinois, they also sent a lot of guys there who had been leaders in gangs or gang members. Of course, you know, a majority of the people in Illinois prisons are members of a gang or were members of a gang. But they sent a lot of these guys and, you know, they had been leaders, you know, decades before they got sent there. So, you know, they also sent a lot of guys there who did something, um, you know, the concept behind TAMS was to send people there who were disruptive or violent in the mm. regular prison system, to send them there and break them down. So they did send people there who had, who had been disruptive, although more than half of them had never, had, didn't, actually didn't have anything on the record like that. But mm. some people did. The thing is, they were disruptive like 10 years before they got sent to TAMS. <laughs> you know, so by the time they opened it, they had to use it. 
Wow. And, and let's talk a little bit about before, before we get into some of the projects, you know, that you did a little bit more for people. Because, again, you know, most of our media representations about what goes on in a supermax prison, or what it might even look like or what the punishments are, are very, you know, very uh, concrete in that they are often wrong. <laughs> so can you maybe talk a little bit more about what some of the men that you've met actually dealt with in some of the conditions, especially the solitary, uh, the effects both physically and mentally? Um, well, you know, at TAM Supermax, the effects on people ranged, and it ranges in solitary all across our country, but most people who spend a long time in solitary confinement will start to have some of these symptoms, symptoms like um, memory loss, um, inability to sleep, paranoia, um, um, sometimes hallucinations, sometimes psychosis. Um, a certain percentage of people in solitary confinement will have compulsion to suicide. Yeah. Um, they'll start self-mutilating. Uh, both, you know, a lot of the guys describe people howling at night, people hitting their head against the bars. Um, people often say they can't read anymore because they can't even... They cannot concentrate anymore. They sort of, their mind slips away. They cannot remember what they just read. So they sort of lose the ability to read. And, you know, I always accepted that, that, that this was true, um, but I really started to understand it later um, when, I when I heard the testimony of more psychiatrists, et cetera, about the issue of solitary confinement. And what they say is that um, being in relation to another person, both with your senses, smelling, touching, you know, seeing, hearing another person, um, and talking to another person, like intellectually, both of those things are physiological needs because it sets up reference points for your brain that come back to you. You know, you mm. need reference points to kind of have an identity, to know what you are, to know who you are. And I mean, that kind of makes sense in a social way. Like I can say, should I send this email or is this too insane? You know, I can say that to someone. I mean, we balance ourselves out and people with mental illness actually need that very strongly, you know, that sense of support to kind of, yeah. you know, stay in reality and stay out of psychosis. But, um, but we all need it. And when you lose that, when you no longer have reference points, you're not bound, your eyeballs aren't hitting any other eyeballs. You're not, mm. you're talking, but it's very distorted because if you, you know, these guys are yelling down a hallway, there's only 10 guys on a pod and it's just, and, and I've been in TAMS and seen these guys self front, you know, it's like everything is so distorted and weird when you talk because it's all just metal. And concrete. And concrete, yeah. Um, when you start to do that, people lose reference points, and that's where your mind starts to slip. And, and it makes sense, you know. I mean. Yeah, you know, you, you accepted the award um, uh, yesterday with a few of your collaborators, and uh, I got, you introduced me to them. And one of them um, I recorded uh, yesterday a bit. Let's, maybe we should play that now. He, this is Daryl. We want to introduce him real quick? Sh sh uh, sure. It's, uh, it's hard to introduce him. It's hard to do a short introdu introduction for Daryl, but Daryl was actually tortured into a murder confession in Chicago uh, about 26 years ago um, as part of a, uh, we had a torture ring by the Chicago police. They tortured about 200 African-American men, and it's taken decades to sort that out, and it's, there's not justice yet. It's still being sorted out. Daryl was one of those guys, so that's why he was in prison. Uh, but anyway, uh, after 24 years, he won. He had his conviction overturned. He spent the nine, the last nine years of his sentence in TAMP Supermax in isolation. Yeah, and here's here's uh, a little bit of him talking about that. 
it was times in there when Daryl Cannon would wake up in the middle of the night sweating. Uh, my nerves was was so shot where my hands were shaking, and I laid on the concrete floor. A Tam's Supermax was always cold. Winter, summer, fall, uh, recycled air that they have. There are no ones that you can open, so it's always cold. Um, it was times that my nerves got so bad that I was borderline uh, losing my mind. And I just laid on the floor in just my shorts, and I stretched out as if I was on the cross or something. And I would lay in that position until the coldness of that concrete would bring my body temperature down. Then I was able to get up, go to the sink, throw some water on my face, and then go back to bed. That is a feeling that I never, and I pray that I never experience again because uh, you're on borderline, make no mistakes about that, about almost in losing your mind. And, you know, it wasn't a piece of cake at all. In fact, I, con I contracted hepatitis uh, of the liver while in Tams because I drunk contaminated water. I had no other choice. I had to do that or else my kidneys would have shut down. And because of that, I've had to take special medication uh, in being home uh, to, to help uh, my viral load, which detects how, how bad your liver is, uh, to get my viral load under control. That wasn't easy. The, the medicine that they gave me uh, is medicine that would make you sick. Uh, you would have weight loss, uh, sweats, shakes, uh, the whole works. So you see, I did, in fact, suffer and I continue to, to have different little changes that I have to go through. But praise be to God, my health is much better now than it was while I was in TAM. I, I had no intentions of being broken. The same way I walked into TAM Supermax upright, I intended to walk out of there upright. You know, in my right state of mind, uh, not having any of the ills that exist with the guys who have been there a year, two years, three years. You know, the spirit of my mother and my grandmother is embodied in me. And those two ladies ran our household. The men were there, but those ladies ran the household, and I happened to be the baby of the family. You know, so I was able to experience and see uh, the strength in those women. And those two women are, are deceased, and their spirits have been embodied in me to ensure that Daryl Cannon would be one stubborn son of a gun that you would not break. So here's the question I have for you. Um, it seems that, and, and this is not, uh, there are probably many men like yourself who, mm -hmm. who get out of there and they never want to think about this again. Right. And this is not a, uh, saying there's something wrong with their character because I can't, I, I, I could see why that would be a natural and smart response. Yes. You are staying in it. You are really dedicated. You've been working on this project. You seem really committed to staying on top of it, like almost reliving it. Why? Why? I do. I do relive it, and it's painful every time I relive it. Uh, matter of fact, my stomach, uh, normally I would have my Pepto-Bismol right here with me now, you know, to take my Pepto because every time I relive this ordeal, uh, my internal system is bad. But Daryl Cannon feel that uh, God had a purpose for allowing me to survive nine years of hell in Tams. You know, my mother and my grandmother was with me to help me for a reason. 
And that reason is there are tons of people throughout the United States uh, who need a Daryl Cannon to speak about the atrocities that happened in Tams. I feel that it's my duty, it's my job to be the spokesman for all of those who are not able to speak for themselves. And that is exactly what I'm going to do, and that is exactly what I'm going to continue to do. <laughs> so that's Daryl Cannon, and, and I think that sentiment that he ends there, uh, Laura Joe Reynolds, who is here in the studio with us, uh, this evening um, runs th- is a core part of this project. It seems for all of you that, and, I, and I'm wondering if you could maybe break this down because it seems that on a, on a, on the one hand, there's there's such a public service component to this, just teaching Americans, m- making people aware of what goes on in these hidden supermax prisons like Tams in in Illinois. But there's also a art project to this, which you started to talk about. So if you, if you want to sort of, as the, we left off with you talking about uh, introducing poetry uh-huh. into the, the let, let's pick it up there. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, let me say that hearing from Daryl just now, you can see how critical these guys were to this campaign. There would be no campaign if these guys didn't step up and go talk literally hundreds of places, go to hearings, events, talk to press, et cetera, about their experiences. And um, that, so anyway, so having said that, let's go back to the story. So we wrote um, poetry, or we didn't write it, we sent poetry to to the men in Tams, and they sent poetry back, some of them, and or they said they didn't like the poetry, some of them. Uh, But we started a dialogue with them. And so they started to talk about Tams, you know, and what is going on there and the symptoms they were having, and, and they started asking for help. So one guy actually wrote and said, hey, this poetry is great, but could you please tell the governor what they're doing to us down here? So he, in a sense, and all of them redirected us to uh, what they needed, which was they needed help. They wanted somebody. They, they were down there. You know, they can't make phone calls. It's eight hours south of Chicago. They felt completely forgotten and like they were going to die there. And no, there was absolutely nothing happening in terms of advocacy or you know, doing anything about this prison, and they just said help. So we started using their letters as testimony, um, you know, taking testimony out of their letters and uh, taking that to public events. And and the important thing we did is actually create a legislative campaign, and so that's when we launched TAMS Year 10. And TAMS Year 10, the concept was, this is a legislative campaign, the goal is policy change. The goal is either to reform or close the Supermax prison. And it was called TAMS Year 10 because we launched it on the 10-year anniversary of the opening of the Supermax. So it was opened in 1998. TAMS Year 10 was launched in 2008. And we weren't putting this out into the ether. We weren't trying to talk to, you know, just anybody. Mm -hmm. Hey, here's the problem. We were really focusing on decision makers. We were focusing especially on the legislature and saying to them, you need to provide some oversight at this prison. We've had this prison around for 10 years. When these guys were sent there originally in 1998, they were told they only had to be there one year. And if they were good and didn't have disciplinary problems, they could leave after a year. Well, one year turned into 10 for one third of those men. And for all the rest, you know, it was eight or nine or seven or six or five years. Um, So, um, 
so, so you have the poetry and some of the letters that are coming out that are some of the documentation that you're spending. But there's also a photo project. And this, to me, is, is one of the ones that really moved me. Uh, this is called Photos from Solitary. Photo Requests Photo from Requests Solitary. from Solitary. Could you uh, tell us about this one? Sure. Well, so part of our campaign, of course, was to focus on legislators. But uh, what we need to focus on legislators is other people who care about the men at TAM Supermax. So we had to do a cultural campaign to direct people to ca- learn about TAMs, care about it, and um, you know, then be willing to be part of our campaign and contact our legislators. So this is one of the projects that we did. This was both for the men and it was also you know, to help spread the word about solitary confinement. So we sent a, uh, a letter and a form to every man in TAMS and said, we will take a photograph for you of anything you want, real or imagined, uh, you know, just fill out this form and let us know. And so we got these requests back, requests of what they wanted a photograph of. They could have one photograph. And the requests ranged from, you know, a gray and white horse in weather cold enough so you could see his breath, you know, with this particular thing symbolizing, you know, the freedom that's found in nature. I mean, these were incredibly specific requests. Another guy wanted a photo of a woman on a lake fishing um, with an empty chair next to her that said free bird, with a cooler of beer, with a Harley Davidson in the back, uh, Harley Davidson there, and then the picture was supposed to be taken from the lake towards the woman, and the woman should be over 40. We were very impressed with that. <laughs> um, we had, uh, of course, uh, uh, quite a few requests of different neighborhoods and different streets. So, like 63rd and Marshfield facing east at 2 p.m. You know, go out and tell everyone that it's for D-Man. Make sure you get my auntie's house. It's the greenhouse. Mm. You know, etc. So there's a there's a link I just want to point out that on the playlist page for today that that uh, to a gallery where you can see many of these photos. Some of them you had to do like Photoshop with, like the pile of money. Yes, exactly. One photo request was for my mom with a mansion, with a pile of money in the front of the mansion, and a Hummer. And um, he sent us a photograph of his mother in order to take this picture. I don't know if he even knows what Photoshop is, but hey, we said anything. So he sent us a photo of his mother. And um, the wonderful artist Janine Olson uh, photoshopped this picture together. And it's, it's all, you should look at it. It's, yeah. it's a very vibrant uh, photograph of a mansion. <laughs> and um, this mother's in the, like, in the foreground, and she's really young, and she's wearing a jersey, mm. and she, she looks tough, and there's money on the ground. And uh, it's really a fantastic photo. This guy, we learned later from letters that he sent later, that his mom had died while he's in Tam- he was in TAMS, and, so this, and that it had been just devastating to him and um so this was sort of a memorial to her yeah. kind of a way to combine what she should have had with you know all in a photograph and in fact now that i'm on the topic um quite a few of the guys we work with their mothers died while they were in tams and it's they say a form of anguish like no other to to have to grieve in isolation your mother's death you know and in fact both akeem and daryl who We'll hear from Akeem later, but both of their mothers died while they were in TAMS. Let's actually hear from Akeem now. Our guest today on the program is Lori Jo Reynolds, a legislative artist, and we're going to talk about what uh, that means and and what the uh, accomplishments of this campaign are in a moment. We'll take some calls as well, 201-209-9368. But first, let's hear from Akeem, one of the uh, other amazing individuals working with Lori Jo Reynolds on this project. He was also in town this weekend to speak 
at uh, the Creative Time Summit when they accepted their award uh, for the prize for art and social change. But I asked him specifically about the power of art, not just, you know, about the poems, because he was there when he was getting poems sent to him, and, and that's where he starts off here. So let's hear this. When Tam's Yatine campaign kicked in and sent me my first poem, I was still behind the bars and Tam's. I ain't gonna lie to you, I was like anybody else, man, send me a poem, send me a money order. That's what I need, you know what I'm saying? And so again, I took that attitude for about a, a half a day. But that night when guys started exchanging those poems, reading them over the gallery, it was absolute quiet. You saw the best of the best, the means of the means, you know, put emphasis on their words as they read poetic expressions. And to take it one step further, once I was liberated, you know, they had started a literal art campaign where they was sending pictures, receiving them from the prison, as well as sending them to the prison. And I promise you, you have some of the greatest artists that this world has ever seen behind bars. I remember one picture that's indelible in my mind. This Latino guy had drew a picture, um, and the message he was trying to get about was that this system, this sale, this uh, situation is consuming me. And the picture was that he was standing there behind bars in 3D. You saw one of his bodies, one of his legs had actually became the bars. You know, his arm, you know what I'm saying, reached out and it took on the shape of the toilet. And so half of his body was part of the cell and the other part was the human being. And that's indelible in my mind about how this guy had literally taken on the personality of the cell. Um, I remember also being free how they had an auction and they had taken pictures from the guys who had uh, sent photos to the Year 10 Tier campaign. And it was like, my God, these guys did this art? I mean, to literally take, um, they didn't have real colors. They took, you know what I'm saying, like the color from your underwear and, and a bag of the potato chips came and wetted it and made the little ink, the little red come off that, bled it off, and then to bleed that same color and to make their papers color. You know, they didn't have no crayons, no paint, but they found creative ways to bring color to their expressions. And, you know, these same guys who was the rough of the rough, now they was actually, you know, competing and, and, and asking for constructive criticism about the pictures they draw, you know, the poems they write. We even started a, a, a Tam's newspaper in prison where guys could submit their poetry or their pictures to the chaplain and they would actually, you know, put together a Tam's newspaper with these guys. I have a stack of them at home, you know, because the poetry was so profound. The pictures were, were so, I mean, just mind-blowing that I had, to, I had to collect them. And so, yes, I'm a living witness of how art and this so-called legislative art had a hand in transforming these guys, not only their, their, their minds, but also their hearts. Yeah. But even taking it a step further, how, how influential was the art part of this, shutting Tams down? It was very, very, very influential. You know, it was like the perfect storm. You know, you had legislators who was actually reading these poems and viewing these pictures, and tears was welling up in their eyes. You know, and so the poems 
what about Jack and Jill going up the hill? You know, here I am sitting in this cell. And people try to tell me that I'm living in hell. How are you going to advise me what I'm going through when you don't know, you know what I'm saying, unless it's you? And so just that fast, you know, I'm telling a person about how I'm feeling, you know, and the legislators start to feel it. I thank God for uh, 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 Legislator Amos. I thank him for uh, Eddie Washington, Ricky Hendon, Patricia Van Pelt. You know, these people was moved by these pictures and these verses that they saw and read. And ultimately, they put their pen to the paper to sign off and say closed hands. Well, there, that is uh, Akeem, one of your uh, collaborators, Lori Joe Reynolds. And he kind of gave away uh, the, the, the amazing part of the story, which is you were successful and Tams was closed. Um, but uh, uh, I want to ask you the same question I asked him there about, like, how influential was the art part of this legislative art project in, in, in that success? Well, you know, I think of the whole campaign as legislative art, not just the photo part, not just the poetry part, you know, and not just the graphic design part. There's so many different elements. Um, But it's really, I really think of the whole entire campaign as a system that worked together and was incredibly well integrated, like our graphic design, our photos. We brought our photos to the state house, our special lobbying cards that were designed, you know, for special purposes. So... Um, the, the, the entire campaign had this form of commitment and even obsession, you know, that is what to me brings it into the realm of art. Um, and all these other, all these things that we're naming are part of it. So, but, um, I mean, I feel like it, this is an issue that, that nonprofits were not taking up at the time because it was as you said this kind of this group that was the most demonized group at the time you know yeah. the supermax prisoners the worst of the worst and i feel like and the, and we should point out that the prisons have a lot of money and a lot of power i mean this is a lot of big business you know as we all hear about the prison industrial complex but if that if there was the you know the front end it would be you know these high security supermaxes where it's just like bazillions of dollars yeah well, and in, in the end, I mean, it, it, we might as well tell the rest of the story here. Um, it was the guards union that ended up being our major opponent um, in the fight to close TAMS, and it was Governor Quinn who ultimately did, made the decision to do it in, in an incredibly courageous, principled decision. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about I'm, I'm I'm totally cool with trying not to separate. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm trying to pull the art out of the thing. You, you do call it legislative art. Uh-huh. I'm totally cool with that but could you just maybe talk a little bit more about how you see this working sort of holistically together right well you know as i said before you're the first legislative artist i've ever met i have to say yeah well um so the idea is that the goal of the art is policy change you know it's it's if if there's political art it means that there's some political goal and and the goal of the art should be policy change and that's that's kind of how that's how we saw it but um, well, in terms of how it's working, how it was working, I mean, the, pr- the different projects that, that you've talked about, the photo, the photo request project and, ha- you know, having the men's poetry and all this other stuff, and actually just hearing the guys talk and give testimony, um, and we did performances, I mean, we did all kinds of things. Those are the things that grip the attention of the public. And then one of the principles of our campaign was nothing goes out into the ether. We don't have an event just to have an event. So afterwards, we would get every single person to be very goal-oriented about the next thing they did, and we would keep track of that. 
So we got everyone's name. You know, we literally said, we don't, we're not interested in telling you about this if you're not going to do something about it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It matters mm. what you do about it. So we were very... Wow. Well, you know, let's just, let me just push on that. Like, I think that there are many artists who make something in hope have grand ambitions and hopes, uh, realistic, unrealistic, that this art will have an effect. I mean, I don't think that that's something unshared. It's just that, again, you know, one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you here in the studio is that I, you are really inspiring. You pulled this off. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit more about, I mean, yeah, like, so picking that up there, you know, what do you mean sort of goal oriented? Like, is it, you know, you just can't put the project out there? Like, just this is part of the project then, is what you're, if I'm understanding you. Right. Well, I mean, if we just had the photo request from Solitary Project and everyone, everyone saw it and said, oh, my God, I'm, so str I'm stricken by these requests. I realize that these people are uh, suffering and I want to do something. But then they don't have anything to do. So it doesn't actually, I mean, we're, we're kind of like waiting for their feelings to yeah. go up and bounce off the moon and come back down and do something. I mean, what, you know, what, there's no, there's no uh, vehicle for change there. So we actually had a strategic plan, you know, which was to go to legislators, convince them to provide oversight for this prison. We actually studied the three branches of government. Hey, the executive branch, the, <laughs> the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, and realized we had to deal with legislators because the other two, nothing was going to happen at that moment. So we went to the legislators, and they were very concerned, very upset. We had, you know, we kept track of who's, who, yeah. who had who's, which legislator, and we had constituents go to their legislators. The legislators, they cared. They got really involved. They were amazing. And they p helped put pressure on the Department of Corrections. And in fact, we introduced legislation to reform the Supermax. And then that led to, of course, a ton of press, but it also, more importantly, led uh -huh. to a lot of roundtable discussions with the Department of Corrections about just what the hell's going on there. And so we brought the guys in, us, the family members, uh, did our research and had these meetings and really pinned them against the wall. I mean, they couldn't really justify what they were doing. Sure, sure. You know, you talk about like giving people uh, an opportunity to move beyond I don't care you know, your feelings I don't care I I like that but at the same time you know the 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 color line in terms in this country of like you know what groups in this country are pri primarily in prison it makes it so much difficult for those who might not know someone in prison how did you deal with that issue like getting people to come together I mean you have some amazing um uh, work you did with moms, and we're going to just briefly hear from Brenda, one of uh, your colleagues here in a minute. But, you know, and there we, she talks about mothers having, you know, that is a very easy group. What about people who don't have a connection to someone that was behind Well, bars? that's where, I mean, that, that you answered your own question. That's where the art comes in. I mean, people can hear Akeem, Daryl, these other guys. They can read the testimony and see the photo requests. The photo requests were a huge window for people to care about this, you know, because they just sort of open your mind to realize, God, there's people in there who can't even see an image. Yeah. You know, they can't talk to another person. They don't see anything. So they were very convinced by these guys, you know. And then the people, the, the men themselves wrote to their family members. That's how we got the names of all the family members, um, to, you know. So yeah. it was a system that worked, you know. We went east side, west side, north side and got rounded up everyone we could. And it took hundreds of people to do individual acts of calling their legislators, going to meet with them, putting the pressure on, calling the governor. I mean, we had, you know, a zillion different actions, lobby days. Yeah. events, prayer vigils, you name it. Well, I asked, um, can you introduce uh, Brenda? This was the third colleague that you brought with you sure. this weekend. Real this quick. is Brenda Townsend. Her son uh, 
was in TAMS for 14 years um, before it closed. And he first went into prison when he was 17 years old. She's been a huge part of our campaign. Okay, let's just briefly hear from her. I asked her uh, what the lessons of this uh, story should be. This is her answer. The lesson that uh, um, the public can learn from my success is to become aware, to be, to care, you know, to um, take an interest in what's going on with the penal systems. Don't take the words of the prison system or the politicians, but get involved and try to find out for yourself, even if you don't have a loved one in there, um, just become involved and, and just show some loving and caring for these individuals that don't have anybody. to. Some of them don't have anybody. My son does have me. But some, some, of the, some of those inmates, they don't have anybody. And if, sometimes if you can just write letters to them, a letter is like Christmas to them, just to get a letter or a magazine or any little thing, but just reach out. I like that she, again, just echoing you there, says it's about doing something. And, and, and again, the, lessons of this, the lesson of this story, and again, which is so inspiring, is that it is possible. Like you can pull off something, like shutting down a super max prison. But let me, I, w- I want to ask you that, though. Like for out of this project, you know, and, and looking forward, what, what are some of the lessons for you? I mean, did you think all along that you were going to be able to do this? Absolutely not. I didn't. I mean, I didn't consciously think, oh, this isn't going to work. But, you know, if you had pressed me on, will you even make a single policy change? I probably would have said, I don't know. You know, it, it wasn't going that well in the beginning. It was one day at a time. But the thing is, one day at a time, the things we were doing were having an effect. So we followed it through five years later until Governor Quinn closed TAM Supermax. And, you know, one of the prisoners wrote us, and I just want to quote it really quickly because I think it's I think it's exactly right. He said, to my brothers and sisters by another mother, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your tireless effort and indefatigable labor. In moving the mountain of the state with nothing but teaspoons and chopsticks and paper clips, you showed that faith alone is enough to move great obstacles when they are only standing upon sandy ground. And that's the thing that's so great. This, the concept of the supermax in, in Illinois was that it was the bedrock of the prison system. And if you take it away, we'll have violence and riots and, you know, mayhem and murders. Everyone said this is the key to our prison system, this supermax. But it was on sandy ground, and we didn't know it, you yeah. know. Now the Department of Corrections says, oh, there were only 25 guys in there even needed to be there, you know. And now the Department of Corrections, I mean, we were on the same side as the Department of Corrections all last year. They wanted to close the supermax. And they ended up having to come back and say things that were totally opposite than what they said five years before, you know? So I think sometimes we underestimate what we can really do. Yeah, you know, I want to throw this out to the audience. This went so fast, Lori Jo Reynolds. I mean, obviously, I mean, we could talk about this for another hour. But the number in the studio is 201-209-9368. We have time for maybe one or two questions after mine. Um, But if you want to give us a call now, we can see if we can get you on the air. But mine is, you know, I happen to be a very cynical person, and I just look at the things that I would like to see changed, and it just just seems impossible. And I I don't think I'm alone in thinking this, especially these last few years. You know, I mean, barely like, you know, coming out of the bush years with my sanity like barely intact mm-hmm. and then just you know seeing this last uh, uh, five years but I'm, I'm what do you feel the, the lessons are for people who who just want who want to believe but just have a hard time doing it well I guess one lesson is we all have agency you know and when you look back at history there were always forks in the road where something could have gone one way and it could have gone the other way and 
what happened depended on what the people did at that moment and how much agency they thought we they had. And if you don't believe you have any, you definitely don't have any. Hmm. Uh, you can't really put it more succinctly than that. So what's next? What is the uh, what is the next legislative art project for you? Well, we're still all focusing on the men that were in TAMS and trying to advocate for them where they are now um, because there's some really dreadful prisons in Illinois. Things are better for the men, but they, there's, you know, it's still rough times. So we're still focusing on that prison system, but, and we're focusing on helping Governor Quinn get reelected because he's a great person, a courageous, brave person who closed a supermax, and believe me, it did not help him one bit politically. And that's another lesson. You know, there's a lot of politicians who really yeah. are principled people and do the right thing, and he is one of them. Uh, so that's what we're working on now. But after that, we have the Honey Bun Comedy Hour, which is a variety show. Uh, where we're reenacting scenes from prison life and doing it with the interest of showing the Department of Corrections some of their own policies um, to encourage wow. them to change them. And these will be live events or videos? Uh, this is going to be a performances and videos, and each individual video will be sort of its own mini campaign to change a policy. Unbelievable. Well, we will we'll look forward to that. I can't thank you enough for making time to come on the program today. You really are an amazing inspiration, and this project is just mind-bogglingly awesome. Well, you can see that it was my collaborators uh, and hundreds of other people that made it happen. Yeah. So thanks. Well, thanks again, and uh, stay tuned for Nardwar, who will be up in a few moments. So you are listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in Rockland County at 91.9 and online at WFMU.org. Stay tuned for Nardwar up next.
becomes the ultimate living nightmare because the dead are alive and there's no way to stop them now. Don't open the window. A special weekend late show <laughs> from Filmways. Rated R. Caution. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have in the studio right now? Hello, who are you? They're coming to get you, Nardwar. You are Roger Allen. Hello, Roger Allen. Welcome back to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Thank you. Now, Roger, who are you exactly? Please explain to the people. You've been on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show so many times, 
I don't even remember how many times <laughs> you've been on an Artwork Human Serviette radio show. This is my 10th time on your show. It's amazing. Incredible. And today we are doing Halloween 22. You've been on the show 10 times. How did we come up with Halloween 22? What's going on today on an Artwork Human Serviette radio show? Halloween 22. Halloween. I didn't think. Uh, I'm surprised by that title, Halloween 22. I thought we came up with so many other titles, but that one's completely new. Halloween 22 on an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show. Scary music today on an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show in honor of Halloween. Playing scary music. I've always really loved Halloween. I love uh, horror films and collecting all the toys and I collect records and I've got a lot of uh, what would be considered Halloween type records, so here we are playing them. And last year you were on an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show doing some scary music. What's going to be the difference this time? The difference this time, the music maybe is a little more obscure, not so what would maybe would people would consider Halloween music, but it's still haunted music just the same. And where have you got to find all these songs? Where did you find all these songs? Where did I find them? Uh, some are from memory, some are from books, some are from blogs, some are from stores, some are from pirated crazy websites that you can only find late at night. So what did we hear right off the top there? Speaking of stuff people have no idea about, the mainstream <laughs> Motley Crew. No one has... Oh, you think people have heard of that band? Uh, well, yeah, right off the top we heard the intro from Motley Crew's Shout at the Devil record, which I remember very vividly walking home from uh, school holding in grade six and thinking, like, how in the world am I going to listen to this as uh, there was only one record player in our house right in the middle of the living room and... Uh, you know, you couldn't get away from that imagery. Uh, there was also some Number of the Beast by uh, Iron Maiden in there, some Black Sabbath with a demo of Black Sabbath, and uh, Rain and Blood was in there. And in high school, me and some friends did a lip sync to Rain and Blood that involved some cow's blood, and we got uh, we got in some trouble for that. Where'd you get the blood? I uh, we went to a butcher shop and just asked for a bucket of blood. And how did they give you the bucket of blood? Like, this an actual bucket or... Yeah, an, uh, an actual bucket of blood. And then we poured it into sandwich bags and put it in our pockets and basically ripped them open in the gymnasium. That's amazing. People must have gone crazy. They did go crazy. And at the time, you kind of think as a kid, like, what are all these, you know, these teachers, these grown-ups? What's their problem? But as an adult now, I kind of look back and think, well, maybe <laughs> maybe dousing ourselves in blood was, was going a little far. But it was effective. We won. Uh, then we heard some, uh, yeah, again, Slayer. And I remember buying Slayer's uh, Rain and Blood CD back in a small town when small towns still had record stores. And I remember the girl just sort of glaring at me across the counter, staring at the cover, staring at me, wondering, you know. It was almost as if I was trying to buy alcohol. And uh, we ended it there with uh, Celtic Frost. And, of course, Celtic Frost are credited as starting the Norwegian black metal scene as they were heavy influenced by uh, Dark Throne, were heavily, heavily influenced by them both in their attitude, the way they dress, their guitar chords. And Dark Thrones, A Blaze in the Northern Sky, has a very creepy cover. There's death paint, and this is Halloween, and people love to wear death paint on Halloween. And uh, have you ever heard of the band Gallhammer in Ardwar? No, I haven't. Please, learn me. Learn me. <laughs> well, Gallhammer are an all-Japanese Hellhammer-inspired band, and they're terrible. I love the idea, though. It sounds incredible. It does. And uh, because um, I brought in this 